Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, once again, we come before you. We thank you for this time tonight, this opportunity to be together, to open your word, to think through all that took place in history's time so that we might in this day know you as our Savior, what you accomplished, what happened through the hands of wicked men to accomplish your great redemptive purposes so that all who believed on your Son would have eternal life. It's an amazing transaction, Lord, something we cannot even fathom, even on the simplest of ways, really. The depth, the breadth of what you accomplished and how you accomplished it from our fallen perspective is hard to even understand yet. You've given it to us to to hear of it and to know exactly that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Thank you for that. May we embrace that wholeheartedly tonight in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's take our Bibles tonight as we do and once again open them to our study of the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, we find ourselves once again in John chapter 18. John chapter 18 as we look at the trial of Jesus Christ. One of the most fascinating aspects of the life of Jesus Christ is the reality of the trial in which he was convicted as a guilty man and yet wasn't guilty at all. We left off last time here in John chapter 18 in verses 19 to 24. And so I want to begin there for us tonight. But I also want to say as we begin, because some of us may be wondering that some time ago when we were studying in this chapter, we skipped over verses 15 to 18. You might have noticed that in your in your notes as we were going through. You probably were thinking, okay, we went through verse 14, next will be 15 through 18, and we jumped over to 19 through 24. But I want you to know that was intentional. That wasn't by mistake. It wasn't that we missed those verses. We're going to come back to them possibly next week. Um, so don't think we, we're going to miss that part. That's a very important part. As we all know, the very well-known section of Scripture where P- Peter denies Jesus Christ. So let me read for us once again verses 19 to 24. And really we're going to just use this as a launching off point for our greater discussion on the trial of Jesus Christ, not only from here, but what we have found over the last studies in the other Gospels as well. Beginning in verse 19, the high priest therefore questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. And Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together and I spoke nothing in secret. So why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. Behold, these know what I said. And when he had said this, one of the officers standing by gave Jesus a blow saying, is that the way you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken wrongly, bear witness of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? 
And Annas therefore sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now I trust you remember that we have been analyzing the details of the trial of Jesus Christ. I have entitled this series of messages, An Epic Perversion of Justice. An Epic Perversion of Justice. Because that's really what it is. It is a perversion of justice, all according to the plan of a sovereign God in a moment of history in which God designed so that Jesus Christ, the righteous, would be delivered up into the hands of wicked men so that you and I might be saved. Now, I don't want to go back and reiterate all that we have said already concerning the illegality of what took place in the trial of Jesus according to Hebrew law. I'm not going to cover all of those kinds of things again for us. As we have seen, there was illegal activity at every level. There was illegal activity at every turning point within the trial. So that what we see happening is one of the worst, if not the worst, travesty of justice that could have ever been perpetuated by men. But we also have to remember that all of it is being allowed by God. When we read these texts, when we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and their accounting of the trial, arresting the trial of Jesus Christ, we have to remember that all of it is being allowed by the Father. That it's all part of the redemptive plan and purpose of God so that you and I have the only satisfactory sacrifice for our sin. God is intimately involved with all the details. God the Father has planned and is allowing God the Son to be illegally tried and to be illegally convicted at the hands of wicked men. So that you and I could be saved from his holy wrath due on our sin. That's an unforgettable reality in our minds and our hearts. That really has to be undergirding all of this as you read through it, as we study it. That has to be the undergirding factor of it all. Even as we look at the details of the injustice of it all. We have to remember the undergirding reality is God allowing all of this. In fact, I was reading this week in the Gospel of Mark. And I was reminded of this in, John, in Mark chapter 15, these incredible words this week. Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 31, just as a kind of an intro comment. Mark says, in the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves. Now, Jesus is hanging on the cross. Here he is. He has been convicted. He has been condemned. He is now the one on which this wicked sentence is being carried out. And here is the Sanhedrin, the very ones who were his judges, the very ones who were to be his defenders in the court. They are there. And they're along with the scribes. And they're mocking Jesus Christ among themselves and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross 
so that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him were casting the same insult at him. It's an irony of words. We read that and we don't think really about what it's saying until we think of the irony of those very words and the undergirding reality of what is taking place here with God the Father. He saved others. He cannot save himself. Praise God tonight that Jesus Christ chose to not save himself. He could not save himself? No, he would not save himself. It's an irony of words. He saved others and he would not save himself. He almost could even write in that white space so that he might save others. He would not. God the Father would not allow it. God the Son would not do it. And they're mocking him for that very reality. Praise God that Jesus Christ would not. Now over the last several weeks I have been telling you about a couple books that I have been reading. I don't know if you have acquired those two books yourself on Kindle. They were free on Kindle and about $6 each for their paperbacks. Uh, Those two books written by Walter Chandler over a hundred years ago. In those two books, he gives all of the legal detail. He's a lawyer. He writes it, the perspective of a lawyer, Jesus' crucifixion from the perspective, his trial, his crucifixion, all of that from the perspective of a lawyer. And he gives all the detail from the Hebrew law and, and how a trial was supposed to go according to Hebrew law. One of the aspects that is to be true in any trial, and even a principle that plays out in any conflict, really, among people, is the aspect of a personal defense. Within any trial, within any conflict, there is this aspect of personal defense. Each and every person, particularly from a legal point of view, each and every person has a right to a defense. I struggled with that word right. We have a right to a legal defense. Well, we should have the opportunity to give a defense. Whether it's a right or not is definable by the laws of the land. But but at least it is an opportunity within each case, within each legal event, there is supposed to be an opportunity for someone to give a defense. We even give this kind of opportunity to our own kids when we deal with our own kids, don't we? Right? Something happens between our kids, our kids do something that we've told them not to do, and they do it anyway, and we catch them, and they are discovered. Whatever that wrong may be, whether it's small or large, we're not really going there, we say to them, why did you do that? Right? That's what we say. Why did you do that? And what we're doing when we say that is we're giving them an opportunity for a defense. We give them, the accused, the right to defend their actions or apparent actions, whatever those in their minds were. So whether it's informal in some informal setting or whether it's a formal setting like a courtroom, every system of law gives the accused 
an opportunity for a defense. And if a defense of the accused is not allowed, then immediately it's obvious that it's an unjust case. It's an unjust law court. And so when we look at the trial of Jesus Christ, we need to ask that very important question. Was there a defense given to Jesus? Was there a defense made? And of course, the answer to that question is an obvious one. No. No. Even as I read in, Matthew, or in uh, John chapter 18, they asked the questions Jesus is, is answering, but he's only answering and saying, you, you, you know the answer to your very question. He's, he's not giving a sense of defense. He's just answering a question in a simple kind of way. And so we could even say that the right or the opportunity for Jesus to give a defense was conveniently left out. But for our time tonight, let's just say, for the sake of argument, that that Jesus was now in a legally conferred court system. That he was standing before a legally conferred trial. Let's just say that tonight. Let's assume for the moment that his arrest was done in a legal way, which we already know it wasn't. Let's assume that the charges that were being brought against Jesus Christ are being brought through the proper channels of how it was meant to be in the Hebrew law system, as we have learned in the past, it was not. But let's assume that it was. And let's assume that his trial is being conducted at the proper time and under the proper rules according to Hebrew law. Let's just assume that it's a a right case. In that case, what were the judges supposed to do? What What was the next step in the Hebrew law court when someone was standing before them, and especially in a capital case, what was the next step for the judges at that point? Well, according to Hebrew law, at least according to Chandler, as he writes about it, they would have had to begin to investigate the validity of the accusations that were being made against the accused. They would have had to begin to investigate, as the defense attorneys for the accused, investigate if what was being said about the accused was in fact true. Now, we already know that the accusations against Jesus were twofold. There were two primary accusations that they brought. We already know that when, he, when the, the false accusers came up and said he was going to destroy the temple in three days, that their stories didn't account for much, that they weren't accurate in all points, and so they were really tossed out. So that accusation kind of was thrown to the side. But it was claimed that Jesus had falsely said of himself, or wrongly said of himself, that he was the Messiah, And that he was the son of God. Those were the two primary accusations against Jesus Christ for which he is on trial. He's the Messiah, the son of God. Both of those are religious claims. In our day and age, anyone who claims those kinds of things is pretty much just written off as a crazy person. Right? Anybody who gets up and says today, hey, I'm Jesus Christ, we go, yeah, you're a lunatic. Right? That's the first thing that comes to our mind. But even in Jesus' day, some certain attributes that even were attributed to him, they thought of him that way. 
But when these claims that he was the Messiah, that he was the Son of God, were held up against what was determinative and authoritative, which was the Hebrew Scriptures, which, of course, the Sanhedrin, the lawyers of the time, were to be skilled in, when, it, when you hold them up against those things, then it carries a whole lot more weight as to the validity of his claims. In other words, did Jesus' claims that he was the Messiah, that he was the Son of God, were they false claims? Were they true when compared to the judgments of the Hebrew law, which was to be the determinative factor within a Hebrew courtroom? The judges there that day not only were the experts in the law, but they were the explicit purpose in their courtroom. It was their explicit purpose to defend the accused. So if this is a right-standing courtroom, if this is a right-standing trial by all intents and purposes, could the claims of Jesus be substantiated by the law? That's the question we're asking. Is there an actual defense for Jesus Christ? If they did their job, would they found it to be true that what he was claiming is actually true? Well, in his book on the Hebrew law, Matt or uh, Walter Chandler gives several evidences, and I want to just highlight those for us tonight. Did Jesus have a valid defense? That's the question we're asking. Did Jesus have a valid defense? Well, first of all, The Bible tells us that the Messiah, right? That's the first accusation. He said he was the Messiah. Well, okay, let's investigate that. Let's be the right-standing Sanhedrin. Let's be those who go and investigate the law. The Old Testament scriptures say that the Messiah is to be born in where? Bethlehem. Micah 5.2 But as for you, Bethlehem Ephratah, too little to be among the clans of Judah... From you one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Well, that's interesting because Jesus seems to tell us that he was born in Bethlehem. And there are plenty of records to show that to be true. There are even plenty of people in Jerusalem on the very day of this mock trial that could have attested to the fact that Jesus was in fact born in Bethlehem and his birthplace place is even part of the official Roman records where Jesus was born why because at the time of Jesus birth we know the story well we've read Luke chapter 2 numerous times especially during our Christmas season Joseph has to go and register under Roman rule because the census is being taken. And so Joseph goes to where? Bethlehem because he's of the city, he's of the line of David. And he goes to that place to register. And of course, Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. Now that in and of itself doesn't prove that Jesus was the Messiah But at least as a defense attorney, that's interesting, isn't it? At the very least, it goes to show from the Old Testament. And the judges, the Sanhedrin, would have known the Old Testament. They were experts in the Old Testament. They would have known that the Messiah was born in Bethlehem. 
And Jesus being born in Bethlehem and claiming to be the Messiah, that would at least spark some kind of curiosity within their minds. And what he has claimed had some sense in their heart and mind as to being a curious thing because he was born there, the same place from which the Messiah was to come. So that would have then led you to investigate a little further concerning his claim. Concerning what? Well, what else about the Messiah was to happen? Well, the Messiah was to be born of a virgin. The Messiah was to be born of a virgin. Right? Isaiah 7 verse 14 said, The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Now, how do you prove that you were born of a virgin? How do you prove that? It would be hard at the very least to prove that, but Mary is still alive. Mary is actually in Jerusalem at this time because Mary is one of those even there on the very day he's crucified. Her story is no secret amongst the Jews and amongst the towns surrounding Jerusalem. I've been to Bethlehem and it's not far from the old city of Jerusalem. The story would have spread pretty fast. I mean, the shepherds were in the fields and the angels came and told them the Magi came. I mean, it's no secret that this happened years and years ago. In fact, it was so well known that when Luke researched the information for his gospel, he wrote extensively about it. And on top of that, Mary was there. All the while while Jesus was being tried. Now, of course, it would seem that due diligence would be to simply call Mary to come and to share her story about the birth of her son. But they didn't do that. And so here we are. We ask the question again, was Jesus the Messiah? Well, he was born in Bethlehem. The Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. And he, at least at the very least, claimed to be born of a virgin. At the very least. I mean, even if we don't believe the whole validity of it, at the very least he claimed that. And we have all heard Mary say she was with child before she ever knew Joseph. So at least two things are curious at the very best. There's the third thing the Old Testament says about the Messiah. That the Messiah would come from the house of David. Every Jew understood the promise made to David. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 12. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, this is God's promise to David, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Now we understand the promise there in Second Samuel has distant future views to Jesus Christ, even though in the immediate future he's talking about Solomon. Because certainly Jesus never committed iniquity. 
But that prophecy is made more clear as to who is to come after Solomon when you read Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah 23, verse 5 and 6 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days... Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called. Oh, now we're getting it honed down a little closer. Now we're going to know the name of the person. Now we're going to know the name of this one who is in the Davidic line. Here's the name. The Lord our righteousness. That's his name. Isaiah 11 says similar words. And so the question for us is, was Jesus of the house of David. Well, he was born in Bethlehem. He was claimed he was born of a virgin. Mary's mother seems to have been a virgin when she gave birth. The only logical answer that we can give to the question, is Jesus of the house of David, just from the passages that we read are, yes, yes, he's from the house of David, but even more so when you come to the New Testament. And you read of the genealogies of both Matthew and Luke. Which, by the way, is really Old Testament text. Because the church didn't begin until Pentecost, which was the book of Acts. Mary was a Davidic descendant, which gave Jesus the legal right of David's line. And Joseph was a descendant of David. And being Jesus' earthly adopted father gave Jesus the royal right to the throne of David. So through his mother, he had the legal right. And through Joseph, he had the royal right to the throne of David. So when it comes to Jesus Christ's defense, the Sanhedrin, who are those who are to defend the accused, could have easily confirmed that truth about him. And on that alone, he should have been acquitted. So Jesus is from, born in Bethlehem. He is born of a virgin, and he is of the line of David. There's a fourth. There's a fourth. It says in the Old Testament that the Messiah would have a forerunner. Jesus claims to be the Messiah. Well, the Messiah would be from Bethlehem. The Messiah would be born of a virgin. The Messiah would be of the line of David. Jesus has met all three of that criteria. Well, there's a fourth criteria. The Messiah would have a forerunner in the likeness of Elijah. Micah or Malachi 3 verse 1 says, Behold, I am going to send a messenger, and he will clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Malachi 4, verse 5, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Those are Old Testament prophecies. And of course, we know that John the Baptist was the forerunner. We know that John the Baptist was the fulfillment of those prophecies and Jesus identifies him to be so in Matthew chapter 17. So here is Jesus, the one claiming to be the Messiah, pointing to John the Baptist who is the forerunner to the Messiah and saying he's the one who would come before me. 
He's the fulfillment of the very prophecy of Malachi the prophet. And ironically, the Sanhedrin would already have known that. You say, well, how would they have known that? Because John himself told them so. You say, when did John do that? When did John tell him? I'll turn for a moment back to chapter 1. John chapter 1. Remember what is happening in the first chapter of John? The ministry is beginning. And beginning in verse 19, this is the witness of John. When? When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? So now here is the leaders of the people of Israel, the Sanhedrin, the, the hierarchy of Israel, sending out those of their, the lower ones of their kind to go and say, find out who this guy is. And he confesses, and he did not deny it, and he confessed, I am not the Christ, I'm not the Messiah. And they asked him, then what then are you? Are you Elijah? And he said, I'm not Elijah. Are you the prophet? And he says, no. And they said to him, then to him, who are you so that we can give answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of the one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. As Isaiah the prophet said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. And when he asked him, and he said to them, Why then are you baptizing if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John said, I baptize in water, but among you stands one of whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me in the throng of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. They knew explicitly who John the Baptist was. John the Baptist wasn't pulling any punches. He told them clearly who he is. They were trying to figure out, who is this guy? What's going on? Is this something big happening? Is there something we should know about? And they send people, they ask the question. John tells them clearly. And now here's Jesus Christ saying, I'm the Messiah. So is Jesus the Messiah? Well, his birthplace seems to indicate so. The way of his birth seems to indicate so. He was born of a virgin. His family line would seem to indicate so. He's of the Davidic line. There certainly was a forerunner who came before him, John the Baptist. But maybe, maybe that's not enough. Maybe in a defense case, maybe in this courtroom, that's just not enough for us. Well then maybe this will be enough because the Bible says that the Messiah would do many miraculous works. Well, what do you know? What do you know? Jesus performed many miracles. Especially those that had been prophesied from times past. You say, what do you mean? Well, Isaiah 35, verse 5 and 6 says, Then the eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. Isaiah chapter 61 says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, 
to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to prisoners, to claim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. You say, why, why would you read all that passage? Why are those verses important for the defense of Jesus Christ as to his claim of being the Messiah? Because in his ministry, Jesus refers to those very scriptures as a description of his ministry. In Matthew chapter 11 and Luke 4. Jesus uses the prophecies from Isaiah to describe his very ministry. Jesus did all of those kinds of miracles and they were undeniable. Jesus healed the sick. He raised the dead. He made the blind see. He made the lame walk. He fed the many. And the irony is the Sanhedrin accepted the validity of them all. Even though they tried to deny it. They wanted to get rid of Jesus because all the people were beginning to flock to him. So is Jesus the Messiah? Well, he's born in Bethlehem. He's born of a virgin. He's of the line of David. He certainly did the miracles. There's a sixth reason. The Bible tells us that the Messiah would be presented publicly on a donkey. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble, mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Of course, we have seen in our study of the Gospel of John, John chapter 12, The Jewish leaders saw it. The Jewish leaders heard it. The crowds were bearing witness of him. And the Pharisees saw it and they heard it. John chapter 12 and verse 19 clearly tells us that. John chapter 12 verse 19. The Pharisees therefore said to one another in light of what just took place with Jesus coming in on the donkey. You see what you are. You see that you are not doing any good. Look the world has gone after him. They saw it. They heard it. They knew the prophecy. They knew what was going on. So again is Jesus the Messiah? Well it says. It says that it would be born in Bethlehem. Jesus is born there. It says he was born of a virgin. Jesus is claiming that. It says he was of the line of David. Jesus certainly is of the line of David. So on and so forth. It says that he would come in on a donkey. Jesus has done that. It says he would do miracles. Jesus has been performing those all over the place. Then it says that the Messiah would be betrayed at the cost of 30 pieces of silver. Psalm 41 in Zechariah 11 tells us that. The irony is that the Sanhedrin would have known that prophecy even as they were paying the amount to Judas on the night of the arrest. They would have known that. So did Jesus have a defense for his claim to be a Messiah? 
The only answer that we can come up with is yes. If we were sitting there on a jury trial, we could certainly only come away with saying yes. What about the other part? What about the other side of the accusation for which Jesus is being condemned? Because this is why they're holding Jesus to account. When you look in the other Gospels, John's account doesn't tell us clearly those things. What Matthew and, and, and Mark certainly do. Well, what about this other one? What about being the Son of God? Remember the words that Caiaphas spoke in Matthew 26, verse 63. Here's what Caiaphas said. The high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ. That's Messiah. Tell us whether you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Those are the claims. Those are the accusations. Tell us whether you are those things. Son of God means the same essence as God. That's what Caiaphas is asking. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the very one who is God among us. The Emmanuel, God with us. Are you saying that you are God because the Messiah is God? He's the God who has come to man. He is the God-man. Tell us whether you are that one. Isaiah clearly prophesies that the one who would come is born as a child, that he would be the mighty God. Isaiah 9, verse 6, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Could it be more clear than the reality that the Messiah to come would be called Mighty God than the prophecy of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 9? The Sanhedrin would have known that. Certainly, we may find it hard to understand how God could be man and at the same time be God. But the point that I'm trying to drive home here for us is not that we grasp all the the depth of that reality that Jesus Christ is the God-man. The reality is that the Old Testament Scriptures, the authoritative line to both the Sanhedrin and Jesus Christ as He walked on the earth proclaimed it that the Messiah is God and so because of that they could not reject his claim outright and even the Old Testament speaks of his incarnation that God would become man right the same prophet Isaiah in a very familiar passage to us Isaiah chapter 7, we already mentioned it earlier as he's being born of a virgin. Isaiah seven fourteen, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and we will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So clearly, it was clear that Jesus or that the Messiah is God. You say, so what's the point? What's the point of all this? Well, the point of all of this is to show us that while Jesus is being accused of these things, there certainly was a viable defense of those things. Jesus was being accused of what was true. And therefore, the accusation against him was in fact true. 
and shows that they killed him because of the truth. The Sanhedrin proclaimed its truth. The scriptures proclaim its truth. The Sanhedrin knew it to be true. And therefore Jesus was condemned not for a blaspheme, but for what is true. And so I just want to simply say that if if it was true that the Sanhedrin were guilty for their refusal to give Jesus a right defense, and they were guilty because they refused to acknowledge the truth, then how much more are men guilty today who willfully refuse to consider the evidence? Willfully. They won't even look at it. The Sanhedrin wouldn't even look at it. They wouldn't even investigate it. Jesus made these claims. They didn't even go and investigate, even though they knew it, even though that was their job. How much more guilty are we today who refuse the evidence, who refuse what it clearly says in Scripture and what it clearly shows in Scripture? None of us can be saved by evidence. We cannot be saved because we've heard the evidence and we see the evidence and we know the evidence. We cannot be saved by that. But God has given us plenty of evidence so that we have no excuse when we reject. All of the evidence is here. All the evidence we need is right here. Right here. Sitting right there on your lap. All the evidence you need. If you reject it, if you refuse to even consider it, you'll die in your sin. But if we will consider what's here, if we'll embrace it, if we'll completely See Jesus Christ for who He is. Embrace Him by faith. And it will cleanse us. It will be sufficient to remove our eternal guilt from God. And by faith in Jesus Christ, we will be saved. That's what the Bible says. Why? Because Jesus is the Messiah. Why? Because Jesus is the Son of God. And if He's not already, He can be your Savior. That's the point. And He refused to save Himself so that we who could not save ourselves might be saved through Him. I have been fascinated with the trial of Jesus Christ because of what John said He put it here for. John said, I wrote this that you may know Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. (laughs) Jesus is guilty of both. I'm glad he is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for just this short, brief time tonight, looking at the details of why you could be accused of the very things that you were accused of. And we're thankful that it was true of you that it is true of you and that in you we have life. That by belief in you we have life in your name. That you are the Messiah. You are 
God in the flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. Born of a virgin. Here to cure, to help, to, to show men who you are that they might believe. Lord, I trust that each one here believes that we know you by faith. That our life is secure in your name because of who you are, because you're the sufficient sacrifice for sin. And I pray that we would take this message to others. And as we even heard testimony tonight, that we wouldn't get angry with others, but we would just share with them the truth, knowing that it's the truth that can set them free. Ah, Lord, open the ears of the deaf, open the eyes of the blind, cause those who are not seeing to see, those who will not and refuse to hear to hear so that they might have life in your name. Thank you for coming and hanging on the cross and refusing to save yourself. For this we praise you and will praise you to eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.